All right, if you'll take out your insert on the front, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are looking at Revelation 22, 6 through 21 today. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this text. Lord Jesus, we both need your help and have it through your Spirit. Holy Spirit, help us to read, hear, make plain, and understand what you have for us today in your word, uh, cut through our defenses, our self-defenses, our self-righteousness, our frailty, our lack of understanding, our lack of ability to communicate, and in spite of all of that, do what you do, making yourself known to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to read the text before we move through it. We'll read as we go, but I, before we jump in, I want to highlight just a couple things in the text. I, I bolded three statements One in verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. One in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And one in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. So Jesus here telling us he is coming soon. Yesterday, our daughter, a member of our congregation, Liz Shackleton, gave birth to her second, our second grandson, her second son, Caleb Lewis Shackleton. And we're very very excited. It's great. Somebody asked me last night, was it a hard labor? And I said, no, it was easy for me. I just, we, re- <laughs> we received the text. It's cool. It's so easy when you're grandparents. Um, but a couple weeks ago, Liz thought she was in labor and things had started up. And, uh, and you know, uh, uh, these things are not, it's not a, it's not a pure exact science. The, the, uh, the, the due day was, you know, kind of floats around. And, and so uh, it seemed like she was on that path to give birth, and then she didn't. It held off for a couple of weeks. But after that, people would ask, hey, when's she, when's she going to give birth? And the answer was always this, soon. I mean, it's not going to be in 2024. It's not going to be in June. It's going to be soon. We just don't know. It's soon. We could say, theologically, giving birth was imminent. It was about to happen, right? And so... We don't know when, we just knew it was soon, soon. We're at the end of Revelation. We've been in Revelation for five months, roughly 22 sermons, and we in some ways are back to the beginning, as we're going to see in this text. Jesus reminds us again that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that is the beginning and the end, and that we are blessed if we hold fast or hold firm to the words of this book. But this time, he also reminds us three times that he is coming soon, as he says, coming soon, three times. And so what we are getting at this morning is that Jesus, in this final passage in the book of Revelation, calls us to orient life to his coming. Jesus calls us to orient life to his coming. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is coming soon? Because let's be honest, okay, just real talk for a second. He said this 1,900 years ago. Now, by anyone, who, by whose accounting, <laughs> if you said something's going to happen soon and you're waiting a point, you know, at this point, 1,900 years, in what way can we really consider that soon? This has tripped people up over the ages. Let me just point your attention to a couple things. I put a couple scriptures on the back of your insert. The first is this, that the comings of Jesus in the New Testament 
can be described as those things which happen in history as either judgment or corrective discipline, in that there's more than one type of coming of Christ. In Revelation 2, he writes to the church in Ephesus, uh, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from when you have fought, where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He said the same thing a little bit later to the church in Pergamum. So there, the coming of Christ could be in either judgment or corrective discipline. How do we know that that's something in history and not at the end of history? There is no church in Ephesus or Pergamum today. Jesus did what he said he would do if they did not repent and embrace the love they had at first, which apparently they didn't. And so he came and either in judgment or corrective discipline in history, removed that church from its existence. So he came in history. So the comings of Jesus could, in one way, is described as something that happens in history as either judgment or corrective discipline. By the way, at this point, I'll say we're you know, we go through books of the Bible and we teach what's in front of us. So I'm talking today about the coming of Christ and judgment, not because this is a hobby horse of mine, but because you can't read Revelation 22, 6 through 21 and not see it. So we're just taking it as it is. So first, the coming of Jesus could be in corrective discipline or judgment. Secondly, we can say that Jesus is coming soon in that it is the next thing that will happen in redemptive history. It's the next item on the agenda. So we can say it's soon in that way. 1 Corinthians 10, also on the back of your insert. Talking about some things that happened in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul writes, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, so that's Christians in the first century, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul is saying, you Christians in the first century, the end of the ages has come on you, meaning like since that time, as we've seen in Revelation, since the resurrection of Jesus, that we have been in the, quote, last days. It's a very long last days, but it just means the, the final chapter in history. The end of the ages means just this, the last thing, and the, this chapter ends with the return of Christ. It's the next thing on the agenda. We have elders meetings in New City roughly every month or so. Sometimes those are business meetings. Unfortunately, sometimes those can be a little bit long, like three hours, three and a half hours, occasionally four hours, a little bit long. Uh, and we have these items on the agenda, these docketed items. You know, say so like this, there's, there's seven items on the agenda. And then the last, after the last item, we have a motion to adjourn and we're done. And after the last item, I'm the moderator, so I say I'll entertain a motion to adjourn. I never get the whole sentence out. I'm like, I'll entertain a motion. And one elder's like, motion to adjourn, second. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, but in that last docketed item before adjournment, we know that however long it takes, whether it's five minutes or 50 minutes or an hour and a half, the next thing on the agenda is that we are done. So at any point in that, no, we don't know how long it's going to take sometimes. We can say the end is coming soon because it's the next thing. So the coming of Christ 
can either be in judgment or corrective discipline, or we can say it's soon because it's the next thing on the agenda of history. Now, some of you might say, doesn't Jesus teach that the gospel has to go out into the whole world before he comes? Answer, yes, it does, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has farther to go yet. We could say, well, aren't there ethne, aren't there nations or people groups that don't have the gospel? Yes, that is true. A couple things to remember. There are ethne in existence now that didn't actually exist when Jesus said that. Also, it could be just a very general statement. In Colossians 1.23, it, it already says the gospel has already gone into all of creation. I mean, so it could be just a general statement. I think we say in Christian circles that the return of Christ is imminent, that it could happen you know, imminently. Finally, soon is a relative term to how long we've been waiting for something and who is waiting for it. Second Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This, the coming of Christ is soon to the Lord, who experiences time. I, mean, I don't even know if we can say God experiences time. He is outside. He created time. We experience time differently than he does, let's say. In the big picture, his coming is soon. If you think back, if you're a six-year-old in here right now, how many six-year-olds or seven-year-olds by show of hands in here? Oh, there's a couple. Yes, I see. Okay, great, great. For you right now on April 16th, waiting for Christmas, which is about eight months away, will seem like a long time. And your mom and dad say, oh, Christmas is soon. You're like, it's not soon. It will take forever. And you could make the, the paper chains where you tear off one day. I don't know how many hundreds of days you got to, you know, it just takes forever. It would take so long. You couldn't say it was soon at all between April 16th and Christmas when you're six years old. Now, if you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 85, think back if you can. <laughs> from April 16th to December 25th of when you were six years old. What does that gap now seem like to you? That's what it seems like. The experience of April 16th to December 25th when you were six now seems very soon, very quick. In 10 million years, friends, the, the delay to us the, the seeming delay between Christ's first and second coming will seem soon, right? It doesn't seem soon now. It seems soon to the Lord. One day it will seem soon to us. And that de delay seems long to us, but the Lord tells us why God is actually waiting for others to come to repentance. It's a graciousness that it's, this delay is happening. Another way to think about this is that coming is, in fact, soon when God himself is the basis of reality and not our own experience. To him, it is soon. Okay, so Jesus is coming soon means, could mean that his judgment or correction happens in history, which it does, that it can happen 
at any time because it's the next thing on the agenda, which it is, or that one day it will seem like an instant because one day it will. However we think about it, because Jesus is coming soon, what this text points us to is three postures, if you will. Because Jesus is coming soon, we must hold fast, we must lift up, and we must lean in. Hold fast, lift up, and lean forward. First of all, because Jesus is coming soon, we must hold fast. Let's open your insert and look at verse 6. And if you are here for the first time or haven't been here many times, I, you know, I don't really apologize. <laughs> it's just like we're, we're at the end of the book of Revelation, and there's been a lot of imagery, a lot of ground we've covered, uh, you know, so I'm going to say a few things that may not be uh, exceptionally e- evident from the text or real in your memory. Just know that we've been in this thing for five months here. And he said to me, this angel said to John, this is John the apostle receiving this vision that's overwhelming to him, full of images that we've been parsing out. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, meaning the book of Revelation. Keep the words of the prophecy. Hold fast these words. I read that, uh, maybe you know this, that old sailors used to tattoo the words hold fast on their knuckles to remind them in a storm that they had to hold on to a few things or all would be lost. Perhaps they hold, had to hold on the, the ropes of some of the rigging with one hand and then the ship with the other or the, the, something bad could happen to the sails or they could get caught, tossed overboard. Either way, they had tattooed on their hands, hold fast to remind them themselves to hold fast. Right? The angel speaking on behalf of Jesus here says there is a blessing to us if we hold fast the words of this book, of the book of Revelation. And that is an individual call, right? Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's an individual call to a community of people. So we are tasked with holding fast this message by ourselves in community as we hold it fast together. Holding fast would be, as we've said before, to believe these words, to let our imagination be shaped by these images so that we see the world in a particular way, to map our worldview onto the worldview of this book and to see things from heaven's perspective as revealed in this book. Why? First of all, what we see here is that these words, I didn't have a better word than this, but these words are amazing. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So the angel corrects him, but why is John tempted to worship? Now you might think, wait, isn't this the second time John has done this? Like he did this just in chapter 19. Is he, what, a slow learner? Why does he get corrected there too? I want to give John the benefit of the doubt. He is seeing overwhelming stuff. I mean, in chapter 19, he saw the removal of Babylon, which was alluring and persecuting the people of God for ages. He's like, I can't believe it. This is an amazing message. And he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel. And the angel's like, Psh. 
don't do that, worship God only. He sees here this picture of the new heavens and the new earth from last from Revelation 21 and 22, and it's so beautiful, so grand, he's overwhelmed, and he falls down to worship again, and the angel's like, stop, don't do that. Um, he does it because he, here he gets a glimpse of the story that's coming. And so these words in Revelation are ultimate words. They're just exploding with meaning. They're ultimate, but they're also very applicable. Revelation is not a book for somewhere out there in the future. It's applicable then and and, and now. Look at verse 10. He said to me, do not seal up the words of this, of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, it's helpful to know that in the book of Daniel, the, the, the prophet Daniel received a prophecy and then was told to seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, meaning that this wasn't going to come to pass for hundreds of years. John received this vision and then it is told, don't seal it up. Why? Because the time is now. It, or literally, it's at hand. And because the time is at hand, hold fast to the words of this book. The time is still, the time is now for them. It's still now. So we've, actually, Taylor and I, I think, have received a lot of encouraging feedback in the last five months of just kind of walking slowly through Revelation. And I think it's just because we've endeavored to show that, uh, one, it's not just weird stuff. If you, if you read the Old Testament, it, it interprets almost every vision and image in the book of Revelation also, Revelation's not all like about stuff out in the future. It has, and now there's some stuff in the future to us yet, but it has largely to do with what is going on in history. And we receive these images that are now understandable because of the Old Testament. They're geared to shape our imagination so we have eyes to see, and then it describes dynamics of things that are going on in history, things that have multiple manifestations and expressions. So it it was at hand in the first century, fifth century, 11th century, 21st century. These are dynamics that keep happening in the world. And they will keep happening because the third point there is the world is unchanging. Look at verse 11. This is a little confusing, but let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I think this is just an idiom that says things will continue on in this conflicted state until Christ returns. This is, going to, this is going to, what's going to happen. People will do what they will do. These things may wear different masks from generation to generation, but you unmask it in whatever generation you're in, will you have evil or filthiness or righteousness or holiness. But things are going to, these dynamics don't change through history. The, the mask changes. Right? So the beast of the sea, for instance, may in one generation look like the Roman Empire. In one generation, it may look like, you know, communist government or in another place, a Muslim caliphate or still in another place, a pluralistic democracy. Right? Not, none of those are necessarily as bad as they could be. All of those are utilized to either threaten or woo the people of God away from following Jesus. That happens from age to age, wearing different masks. The beast of the earth, which we saw was human ideology, may wear the mask of a particular gender ideology or a particular racial ideology, 
or a particular nationalism or an unspoken philosophy of comfort at all costs and security at all costs or career advancement at all costs, those are simply ideologies, right? And they wear different masks from generation to generation, but they are often utilized by the dragon to woo the people of God away from following Jesus or threaten them away from following Jesus. Babylon, that culture created, can wear the mask of a culture of sexual sin or can wear the mask of the family dominance of youth sports. It's just Babylon. Now we have eyes to see. Um, Alluring God's people away from following Jesus. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. Maybe that's even more effective. And this is why we hold fast to these words. We don't let them go so that we are furnished with the tools to deal with this and the eyes to see from heaven's perspective. And we can see now, oh, that's the beast of the sea. That's the beast of the earth. That's Babylon. But in spite of all that, this is not a defensive posture. It's a very confident posture. Um, Because not only must we hold fast, we lift up. Lift up Jesus and his, the goodness available in him. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When Jesus returns, history is complete. Now, what's all this about repaying each one for what he has done? Okay, I am not completely certain on this, to be honest with you. Here's what I think at least we're getting at here. I didn't put this in your insert, but I could have. John 6, 28 and 29. The crowds ask Jesus this question. They say, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God. What do we have to do, Jesus? What must we do to be doing what God requires of us? Now, we're taught as Protestants, right? You do nothing, you do nothing, you do nothing. That's actually not what Jesus answers. He says there is something to do, okay? What does Jesus say we must do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is what you do. You trust in the one whom he sent. This is what you have done or left undone, according to Jesus in John chapter 6. So there are a few different opinions on how Jesus repays what has been done, whatever else is revealed There's only one basis for examination. What have we done with the one whom God has sent? That's it. And beyond this, the only rewards mentioned in the scripture are crowns. Crowns. Now, people make a lot of differences, like different types of crowns, or they're just one crown described five ways. I don't really know. Here's what I know. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the elders wear crowns and they cast them at the feet of Jesus. Why? 
because he was the genesis of any of the works we've done in the first place anyway. So I don't know. If you think you're doing good stuff in this life so God gives you some good stuff for the next, I think you're probably missing the, the plot line a little bit. Um, I don't really think that's what's happening, right? Uh, because we, at the end of the day, we realize, you know, it was, if it were not for the work of Christ in us through his spirit, there would be nothing that, I would, that would be generated in my life that's good. Okay. So not quite so sure on that, but I, I want to be clear on one thing here, what this is communicating. Um, we talk about this as it comes in Scripture. The return of Christ and judgment is a real thing. Now, I realize some preachers and ministries make a life of talking about that all the time. We don't, but we don't want to not say it when it is said. And here it is said. It's been said several times in Revelation. In fact, Taylor got a couple of sermons. We had to say it a lot. <laughs> that wasn't intentional. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, says these words. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, fine, your will be done. He says, all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. Further, no soul that seriously and constantly desires true joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, to, those who knock to them, it is opened. In this life, for those who say, Jesus, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. Lewis is saying, one day the Lord will say, have it your way. Have it your way. Those are hard words, but they must be said because Jesus says them. They're said in the scripture for us. But in light of that, look what we have here. The blessing, the, the alternative is Amazing. The blessing is full. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside. We'll get to what, I'll explain this in a second. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If you go back to Revelation 7, 14, we realize those who have washed their robes, they're washed clean in the blood of the lamb. That means our sins are covered in the blood, by the blood of Christ. They're washed away because of what Jesus has done. That is the entrance into this new garden city that fills the earth forever and ever and ever that we cannot imagine the goodness of and the fullness of. And so not to be confused, verse 14 says, those who wash their robes, but you go back into the Bible, you realize the way we, we wash our robes is that we present them to Jesus and he washes them. And by the way, this is an active verb that would communicate, uh, bless are those who wash and keep having them washed. It's an active, ongoing word. Now this is contrasted by that which is outside the city, communicating, this is so good, and such were some of you. But you're not outside the city anymore. You get to be in the city. And by the way, this is a symbolic vision, remember. We wouldn't anticipate in the restoration of all things, like there's the, the holy city, and outside you look over and it's like, oh, there's all these things, right? 
The city fills the whole earth. What's communicating here is Babylon is removed. There's no place for Babylon in the restoration of all things. To be outside the city is to be outside of the new earth. Okay? So, just so we had that picture in our mind. This is picking up on some very good news deep in the, in the epistles. You don't have to turn here, but just in Rev, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, listen to these words. This is like if you wrestle with your own past, with guilt, you wrestle with guilt over patterns of temptation that you have right now, hear these good words. They're good words. They sound kind of threatening at first. (laughs) Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In Christ, friends, we are not defined by our past sins or our present temptations. We are defined by the robes we wear that are washed clean in the blood of Christ, and that's it. And if they're clean, they're clean forever, and so are you, and you are whole in spite of the darkness that still abides in us now and the things with which we wrestle now, we are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why we say the blessing is full. But it's not just that. Here we see that the hero of this story is very clear. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So here at the end, right, this is the very end of the Bible, the end of Revelation, here it is. This this creation that began in a garden ends in a garden city. And after Adam and Eve rebel and break covenant with God and, and usher sin into that garden, and the curse comes, God says to them in Genesis 3.15, I will send one today who will undo what was done. And then God himself, Jesus himself, who creates by speaking, who Colossians 1 says holds all things together by the word of his power. He himself shepherds a people down through the ages, these descendants of David, first by laws and then by promises and then by blessings and by protection and provision and sovereign care down through the ages, through the the line of David. And then this one Jesus takes on human form and he steps into humanity. He lives and he lives loves perfectly, flawlessly, matchlessly, beautifully like nobody ever has or ever could and he is for that despised. And he is hated and he is rejected and he is lied about and he is betrayed even by his closest companions and he is railroaded in a sham trial and he is executed in a seeming beautiful coalescence of the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and for a brief moment hell rejoices because it thinks it has won And unbeknownst to the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and the dragon, in that moment, this same Jesus is taking on his shoulder the sin of all who would trust in him. 
And as we celebrated last week, three days after that Good Friday, that cross in which he takes our sin to the grave, he breaks the power of death in resurrection. And he walks out of that grave. He taught then his disciples for 40 days. After that 40 days, he ascended to the heaven, to the right hand of the throne of God, the executive center of power of the universe. Ten days later, he sends his Holy Spirit in what we now celebrate as Pentecost. Last week, we saw how the Bible divides history into two before and afters. Not before and after the birth of Christ like we do, but before and after the resurrection. Because at the resurrection began what we call new creation. The inauguration, the beginning of that, which will come full later. But that's what happened at the, in, at the resurrection. A morning star, Jesus called the morning star, is a star that appears just before the dawn. Usually, it's actually not a star, but the planet Venus, typically. It's seeing the star. It's a sign that a new day is dawning. Jesus here is called the morning star, signifying that in his resurrection, a new day, even a new creation dawned, something new began. And that same spirit he sent at Pentecost has now invaded the lives, not of thousands or millions, but billions of people down through the ages at the, at the inauguration of his reign and his kingdom. And one day, you and I, if in Christ, I don't know how this will work, will have a similar vision as the Apostle John did at the beginning of Revelation 21. I don't know what angle we'll see it from. People are like, oh, behold, a new heavens and a new earth. Everything's being made new. And that rain that started at Pentecost and the resurrection of Jesus, it was inaugurated then, will be consummated or completed at that time. And if you're in Christ by faith, your eyes have been opened and you have been allowed to see that story. You've been allowed to see it. You've been allowed to see the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, who is the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. I put in your insert a quote from a pastor named John Piper. I remember where I was sitting when I heard him say these words in a sermon I was watching on the internet in the year 2000. Piper, this ends up in a book called Don't Waste Your Life, which I dare you to read at your own risk. Piper says this, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire by them. Friends, if the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things is that one great, all-embracing thing by which we are set on fire, your life will matter. 
forever. Forever. Other things will ultimately seem small eventually. All other claims to authority will be laughable. Right? All the arrogance of man, if the supremacy of Christ is that thing that sets our life on fire forever, all the arrogance of man will look like a five-year-old kid shaking his fist at a Category 5 hurricane saying, I have authority over you. It's laughable. If the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things is that all-embracing reality that sets our life on fire now, now we have incredible power in our life, even in the face of our own frailty and weakness and folly. We have, we have power then not to be selfish. We have power not to be petty because we're not the biggest thing in our world. We have power not to crave the approval of other people because we have the approval of the one who made all things and holds them all together. We have power to serve and love. We have power to see the world and its deception and delusion for all that it is. We have power to see all the great and beautiful things in the world for all that it is, common grace from Jesus himself. We have power not to be led around and enslaved by secret cravings for love and honor and respect and authority and all these kind of things, yet can graciously receive those as they come to us and freely give those to others. We have power to live our lives with things that matter and things that endure. We have power for generosity and gratitude, power to do our work as unto God and not unto man, and power to rest at the end of the day knowing that we don't have to sustain our world or even our family. The hero, friends, is clear. And the only response to this is in verse 17. This is the appropriate response. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The doors are open. Here's a picture of the response, uh, appropriate response to the supremacy of Christ. Come. Come to this reality. Lifting up a voice in an urgent invitation to come. The Holy Spirit and the bride, that's the church together, do this. Right? Even if all the church in, in all of the world at one time could lift up the, the voice to the rest of the world to come to Christ, we wouldn't be the only ones doing it because the Holy Spirit is also doing this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And the only qualification is the answer to this question, are you thirsty? Do you want to take from the river of the water of life without cost? This all-sustaining, all-satisfying, all-beautifying, all-glorifying water that's given freely, do you want that? If you want that, come. So I, it is possible that among us today are those who have not yet responded to that, right? And I just want to, I want to put this out there for you, if that's you. Or maybe you are a Christian, just like, you've just, we forget these things. Somewhere we drift because Babylon is still strong. The beast of the sea, the beast of the earth is still active. The meaning we are looking for, the significance we're looking for, the honor, the love, the success, 
The pleasure is actually looking for the river of the water of life. And Jesus says, I will give this to you freely. Come, come. And I love this. This to me has always been the best picture of evangelism. If I say the word evangelism, some of you are like, oh, I hate the idea of that. Because you, I know what you think. You think of this, somebody doing this. You know, and you look through the mirror and like, gosh, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses again. How do I nicely tell these people that I don't want to talk to them or I'm not, whatever. It's not pressure. It's not selling. It's not cajoling, convincing, forcing, manipulating, guilting, or shaming. It's inviting. What if somebody says, I don't think I thirst. Okay, next, come. Do you thirst? No, do you thirst? No, do you thirst? Yes, come. It's free, come, come, come. I don't know if you've, uh, on our elders retreat, we went to a movie. <laughs> we don't always do this, first time ever. We went to the Jesus Revolution. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's about the, kind of this revival that happened among hippies in the early 70s, right? Like lots of things. I'm not endorsing all the theology, yada, 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 all the disclaimers. However, it was great in part because there was a change that was made in this the, kind of the main pastor evangelist who catalyzed this whole thing named Chuck Smith. He was challenged to see the, that counterculture, the hippie counterculture, not as rebels but as searchers who were actually looking for something, thirsting for something. And once he did that, his posture toward them was changed. Did, everybody, did all of that counterculture embrace that? No. Did most of it? No. Only a fraction did. That fraction was tens of thousands of people. We still feel the, 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 the echo of that in our culture today. The urgency is real, but it's a path of invitation. Come, come. Once we've invited, we've done, not just done our job, we've done what the spirit and the bride are doing. Okay. On the back of your bulletin, Actually, for our call to worship, Isaiah 55. I put this on the back of your bulletin too. This is picking up this deep, this call from deep in the Old Testament. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Amen. But then down later, it's this warning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Implication, he will not always be found. At the coming of Jesus, that invitation is complete. So that's why there is a sense, perhaps, of urgency. There's a warning. There's another warning here that is real. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of his prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. I don't know. So this is pretty dense stuff. Let me just summarize by saying uh, adding there would be adding for our own purposes, taking away would be dismissing or ignoring. God's words are not ours to manipulate. Willingness to manipulate the words of God displays a willingness not to be under the authority of God, (laughs) okay? Um, It's a willingness to be authority over him in our mind. Like, I don't want this text. I think I'll add to this so it sounds nicer. I like that. I don't like that. I'm getting rid of it. Uh, If if you're going to have that kind of authority over God, you will not like the new earth, (laughs) 
His, God's authority is everywhere. And we say it's a beautiful thing. And it's a real warning. It's a real warning. Because Jesus is coming soon, we must hold fast. We must lift up, come, and then finally lean forward. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So come, Lord Jesus. It's a longing. The future, friends, is better than the present. I don't just mean to say that to, to pacify us right now. The future is better than the present. Not that the present is bad. To be honest with you, my present is really, really good most of the time. Seriously. I know a lot of you guys, your present is pretty good. The future is better. Now, not all of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world can say the, the present is really good. We should be thankful for that and help alleviate that difficulty in them if we possibly can, and still the pres- present is not what the future will be. doesn't mean that the present is unimportant. It just means it's not what it will be. Now, I've, over the years, I've had people say to me, I think it's joking, but something like, you know, if Jesus returns soon, I hope he waits until, right, until like I go on this vacation, right, until I see the northern lights or the Grand Canyon or Hawaii or Israel or something. If Jesus returns soon, I hope he waits until, you know, I achieve this goal I'm working towards, okay. Or this is the one I hear most. If Jesus uh, Return soon. I hope he waits until I am married. And I think that's usually because from faithful Christian folks who are looking forward to sex, honestly. Um, and, hey, there are beautiful things in this earth. Hawaii, I assume, is beautiful. I've never been there. Israel is amazing. Northern Lights, fantastic. Never been to the Grand Canyon, but Glacier is pretty cool. Beautiful. Nothing compares to what will be in the new earth. There is a lot of satisfaction uh, in achieving our goals, right? All satisfactions will be eclipsed by the river of the water of the life that flows forever. There's pleasure in committed marital love. There's deep delight in the union of a husband and wife in body, in mind, and emotion. It's good. It is also only a signpost to what is coming. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined is what God has prepared for those who love him. We begin now to taste of that in Christ, but it is only a taste of the meal that is to come forever and fully for eternity. Come, Lord Jesus. One of the ways we declare that together each week, one of the ways we lean forward each week is the communion table. We celebrate what is already ours right now in Christ, the beauty and goodness of it. Your robes have been washed clean in the blood of the lamb. You're forever free. You're forever covered. You're forever empowered to wrestle against the darkness that's in you, and you won't have to wrestle forever because one day all things will be made new, including you fully. We, we taste of it now, and that tasting is anticipation of the fullness that's to come. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this table. If you're not in Christ, but if considering him, I want to give this invitation to you. Come. Come 
to Jesus. He has given his life that we may have life. We simply come to him with open arms. If you want to come to Jesus, I would say, why don't you come to the communion table as your first act of taking in faith?